Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Job chapter 2. You can find that on page 529 in your uh, pew Bible this morning. But first, let's go to the Lord for a prayer of illumination. Heavenly Father, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Thank you that we have your word and that it is powerful. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. As we come before you to read your word, help us to take it to heart that we might be conformed to your image. Open our eyes, ears, and hearts that through your word our lives may be changed. For indeed, we want more than information. We seek transformation. In your holy son's name we pray. Amen. Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Jophar the Naamatite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. I've been cooking. I have my own catering business now. And maybe I have replaced alcohol with chocolate chip cookies. And Vanilla wafers, <laughs> banana pudding, donuts, <laughs> jelly donuts to be specific, <laughs> potato salad, shawarma, and nacho cheese. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't like her. It's been years. You don't like her. Woke up I like her. Park yeah. Sponsor in a different state. Some of you will never get her number at the break. Kind of like my wingman that I have my wounds. From now on, I'm going to enjoy my donuts. I prefer them over hangovers. <laughs> now have a ten minute break. I just I really liked your speech. Oh, thank you, honey. All that dumb shit happened, so now I'm glad it's at least entertaining. <laughs> What's your name? Kate. Um, this is my first time in one of these things. I mean, at least it's my first time that I'm not wasted. So. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing some of that myself. I'm sorry. I don't really know how this works. Could I get your number? Or I, I don't know if I'll need it. I just... Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I'll be happy to explain it all to you. And we can also just talk. Cool. Look, this is the uh, kind of meeting where anyone can share. Sharing always helps me, so... Try introducing yourself to the group. Uh, <laughs> I'm Kate. Um, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Kate. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Um, just those words are 
weird. Um, I mean, I guess I, yeah, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic, really. I just drink. I drink a lot. And um, I've always drank a lot. Everyone I know drinks a lot. So I never really thought it was a problem. Um, but lately, it kind of seems like it is. So, I mean, I just want to be able to have a beer without it turning into 20 or wetting the bed. It just sort of seems like every time I drink, something awful happens in them. All the things that used to be funny are not really funny anymore, and um, things have gone from embarrassing to scary, so. So yeah, I'm kinda, kinda scared. <clears throat> now if you live long enough, if you live long enough, you'll know someone who wrestles with an addiction to alcohol or drugs or tobacco or pornography or gambling or shopping or even food. What are we supposed to do when we have a loved one or a friend who struggles with a habitual sin, some type of besetting sin, who, who are, who's unable to get free? What are we to do for that friend or that loved one? Find out, open your Bibles to Galatians, chapter 5, verses 25 to 6, verse 5. Before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit to guide us in the reading of His Word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we come to you today looking for answers, seeking your wisdom, seeking your direction. God, we pray that as we read your word, you might speak to us, that we might have ears to hear. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, listen to the word of the Lord. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too become tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Here in the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you were with us last week, you know that we were talking about how following Christ means that we seek to walk in step with the Spirit. And if we want to walk in step with the Spirit, then we've got to sow to the Spirit. And we sow to the Spirit by practicing spiritual disciplines, the kind of spiritual disciplines that Jesus did while he was here on this earth. 
Spiritual disciplines like praying and, and of course, memorizing and meditating on the Word of God and, and fasting and, and spending time in solitude and, and silence with our Heavenly Father. Yes, it's through a, these spiritual disciplines that we grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And then we begin to naturally bear the fruits of the Spirit that we talked about last week, like love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we grow in our relationship with the Spirit, Paul then warns us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 26 of our text this morning, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, why do you think Paul would need to tell us not to become conceited, not to uh, become conceited so that we begin to provoke one another, or begin to envy one another? Why does Paul need to write that? Paul probably wrote that because he knows that as we grow in our walk with God, as we seek to become more like Christ, we we face that very real temptation to become conceited, to look at the sin of someone else and to stand in judgment of them rather than to offer love and compassion. In fact, the Greek word for conceited here is kenodoxas. Uh, It means conceited or exaggerated self-conception. Literally, it's translated as vain glory. The last part of kenodoxas is doxas, which means glory or praise. In fact, the English hymn that we sing almost every Sunday, doxology, uh, gets its name from that uh, Greek term, praise. And so uh, Thomas Ken, who wrote this hymn in 1674 as a part of a, as his manual of prayers for the use of the scholars of Winchester College, wrote this for your private devotional life, the doxology. We'll sing it together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Y'all should join the choir. Y'all sound great. Acapella. That was excellent. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Thomas Ken wrote that for your own personal devotional life, and that's a great a song for us to sing because it helps us remind us that all glory on this earth should be given to God, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. The praise and the glory should all go to God, not to man. But unfortunately, in our mass media culture, our consumerist culture today, people often idolize athletes, movie stars, uh, rather than God, don't they? In our world today, everything is measured according to our peers, and so the most athletic and the most, uh, most uh, the prettiest people and the wealthiest people in our pop culture are often given praise because uh, people think, well, they're better than everyone else because look at how they've succeeded as if they have uh, a better status before God. But that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God, is it? In the kingdom of God, we recognize the fact that everyone is created in the very image of God. Therefore, everyone is fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. The gospel of grace helps us see that we are loved not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That God loves us because he loves us. And there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. He's already shown us the full extent of his love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater love than the love of Christ. Yes, the gospel of grace helps us see that God loves us because he loves us. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more, nothing we can do to to make God uh, more pleased with us, because He loves us already. He's demonstrated that. As recipients of God's unconditional love, we should treat everyone the same and and love people regardless of who they are or what they've done. 
We should recognize that everyone has value because they have been created in the very image of God. At the foot of the cross, the ground is really level, for we're all sinners in need of God's grace, aren't we? The problem is, we live in a world where one is constantly measured to one's peers. Your success in your business is measured to whether or not you outperformed your competitors. Your success, even in the classroom, is measured often according to a bell curve. How did you measure according to your classmates? Yes, we can, the, we in our culture today can often measure ourselves according to our peers and feel that our self-worth is found on whether or not we're better than them, whether or not we exceed them. We can see the sin of another. And rather than offering prayers for them and, and hurting for them, we can judge them and, and think that we're better than them. We can become conceited because we think that somehow their sin is, is worse than ours, and so we're better than them in the eyes of God. Rather than falling into the sense of a burden for their transgressions. Tim Keller points out that conceit is a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor and glory, leading to a need to prove our worth to ourselves and others. This, in turn, fixates our mind on comparing ourselves with others. The gospel of grace should destroy conceit in our hearts because the gospel of grace helps us see that we're all sinners in need of God's grace. The gospel of grace helps us see that we're really equally created in the image of God and we're all equally loved by our heavenly Father who demonstrated his love for us and while we were all sinners, Christ died for all of us. The gospel of grace should remove our human insecurities as we realize that we're loved by God unconditionally and sacrificially. Not because of anything we've done, but simply because God loves us. We find our strength and our security in God's love. Not in our performance. Not in our behavior. The gospel of grace also humbles us. Because it helps us remind us that we are sinners. All of us, saved by grace. The gospel of grace also emboldens us before others. Because it reminds us that we're loved by God, honored by the only eyes in the universe that ultimately matter. Tim Geller, again, does a great job describing how we should view ourselves and others in light of the gospel of grace. Keller writes that what you think of me is not the important thing. Jesus Christ's approval of me, not yours, is my righteousness, my identity, my worth. What I think of me is not the important thing. I am just as much a sinner and just as undeserving of Christ's love for me as this person. Keller then later quotes C.S. Lewis when he points out that the gospel of grace should lead to a holy humility. And according to C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. In humility, a holy humility, our eyes are so focused on God and what God has done for us that we don't think of ourselves that much, we actually think of ourselves less. We tend to think more about God and what God has done for us. As we find our self, a sense of self and security in the gospel of grace, we gain a holy humility. We're no longer focused on ourselves, but rather on God. And how God might use us to love others in light of God's love for us. According to Galatians chapter 6, 1, one of the ways that we can love others is by helping restore a brother or sister in Christ who has fallen into sin. If we see someone who is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice that Paul makes the point that those who are spiritual should restore those who are caught in a transgression. As you recall in the Gospel of John chapter 8, while Jesus is in Jerusalem, 
the Pharisees and the scribes bring a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus. Now, if someone is caught in the very act of adultery, a woman, then there must have been a man, but they don't bring the man, they just bring the woman because, well, really, she's just a pawn in the game. They want to test Jesus to see whether or not he's going to uphold the law of Moses. And so they bring this woman to Jesus, and in John 8, verses 4 to 5, the Pharisees and the scribes say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? I know Jesus has been a man of great compassion and grace, but they also know that, well, he's a Jew, and he should uphold the law as a teacher, as a rabbi. And so they're wondering if he's just going to forgive her or if he's going to condemn her as the law says she should be condemned. The scribes and the Pharisees are trying to test Jesus to see if he'll uphold the law of Moses or simply offer forgiveness. The scribes and the Pharisees don't really care about the woman who's caught in the adultery. She's simply a pawn in their game. The scribes and the Pharisees lead with the law and say, aha, you've sinned and so you need to be condemned according to the law of Moses. You should be stoned. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus leads with love and lets the, know, lets the woman know she's forgiven, but he doesn't condone her sin. Do you remember what Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees? Do you remember how Jesus answers their question? Of course, he doesn't really answer their question, does he? He draws on the ground, and then he, after drawing the ground, seemingly ignoring them, he finally stands up, and, and then he says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, these men leave, realizing that they have their own sin, and there are no place to throw a, sten, throw a stone at this woman. Now it's just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus looks at the woman and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And this broken woman, embarrassed and ashamed, looks at Jesus and says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says the brilliance of this statement. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus, the only one who was without sin, Jesus, the only one who had the right to stone her, does not condemn her, but he also doesn't condone her. He tells her to go and sin no more. He says that what you've done is wrong. Adultery is wrong. It's one of the seven, it's the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. We're not supposed to commit adultery. Jesus in no way condones her behavior. He calls her to repentance. And people caught in sin must be willing to repent. They're going to be changed. In our text this morning, Paul lets us know that when we see someone caught in transgression, we need to reach out to them with that same compassion that Christ reached out to this adulterous woman with, with a spirit of gentleness. The spirit of gentleness, of course, comes from the Holy Spirit because gentleness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, right? It's listed by Paul in Galatians 5. Before we even approach someone about their sin, we've got to pray and ask God to guide us in that conversation that we might have a spirit of gentleness as we seek to hold others accountable to their behavior with the hope, with the hope of restoring them to the community. Now, I began this morning's sermon by showing a clip from the movie Smashed. I can't recommend it. It's rated R. It's got a lot of bad language, but it really does a good job of demonstrating uh, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, that last scene I showed it was a scene of, of, from the movie from uh, Kate Hanna is the star. She's the actress, or she's the character, Kate Hanna. Um, and Kate Hanna is a school teacher. 
And Kate Hanna struggles with an addiction to alcohol, and of course she doesn't want to admit it. One day she comes to class so hungover, she teaches little kids, little second graders, she ends up throwing up. And the kids see that she's thrown up, and they said, oh, you know, Mrs. Hannah, are you, Miss Hannah, are you uh, pregnant? And so she kind of goes with that and says, yes, yes, I'm pregnant. And then her principal thinks she's pregnant, and they have this, it's really embarrassing, they have this uh, party for her, like a baby shower, <laughs> but she's not pregnant, she was just hungover. So it's a horrible situation. And she gets into AA, and she's got to realize part of AA is you've got to go to people that you've lied to, and you need to confess your sin and try to be reconciled. And so she has these really awkward conversations. But anyway, before she ever attends AA, there's this vice principal who reaches out to her, who sees that Kate Hanna is struggling. He notices that she was drinking in the parking lot. She confesses to him that uh, her throwing up before the kids was not about being pregnant, but that she was hungover. And so he reaches out to her in a very kind, non-judgmental way so that she might experience the power of God moving through Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to show you a clip that helps us see this kind invitation he brings. Is everything okay with you? I don't know. Um, no. I mean, I puked in front of a bunch of little kids and I told everybody I'm pregnant, so. Yeah, I don't think that's really okay, is it? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I normally don't tell people I work with about this, but I'm a bit of an expert when it comes to these things. You? Yeah, me. I've, I've lived a strange one. I'm nine years sober, AA and NA. Um, I used to drink cocaine. It's really cheap in the Philippines. Wow. Listen, Kate, uh, I know meetings are weird, especially at first. But if you want to, um, I mean, you never need to feel like you have to. But the ones I go to are pretty small, nice little groups. So I'd be happy to take you. No pressure. <laughs> okay. That saved my life, though. I love that line. It saved my life, though. God used Alcoholics Anonymous to help save the vice principal's life. As followers of Jesus, we know how Jesus has saved our life, right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be reconciled to God once and for all, so that we could be in a right relationship with God if we simply believe in Him. And now in Jesus invites all of us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's interesting that the word that Matthew uses to talk about Jesus says, my burden is light, that Greek word for burden that Matthew uses is the very same word that Paul is using in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5, for when he says, for each will have to bear his own load, load and burden being the same word in the Greek. Of course, the load we bear is light. It's light when we give it to Jesus, right? Now that we know that the burden of our sin is carried by Jesus, we can take our burdens to Jesus. 
the clip I just showed, I love the way Kate's coworker invites her to the AA meeting. He admits that he too is a sinner. He confesses that he is an alcoholic, and he invites her to an AA meeting so that she can receive the healing where he found it. He tells her, it saved my life. Jesus has saved our lives, hasn't he? Are we willing to reach out to others with the love of Christ, those who are caught in habitual sins of life, so they can join us in a relationship with Jesus, so they too can find healing? Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, is a wonderful ministry that God has used to help save the lives of many, many people. The A group meeting that uh, Kate attends has about 10 people in it. We saw it in that first clip. And it's co-ed. And as we saw in that first meeting, Kate is encouraged to reach out to a woman that she connects with to become her sponsor. Now, the sponsor in AA is to help guide a person in in, in a one-on-one relationship get through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous has the requirement that one sponsor or accountability partner be of the same gender. Do we have or do you have an accountability partner in your life today? Do you have someone of the same gender who can help hold you accountable to walk in the ways of Christ, to experience His love firsthand, that when we begin to fall from God's plan, that we have someone we can come to and confess our sins to, as James encourages us, that if, you, if you're in sin, confess your sins to one another, for the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The truth is we all need someone, don't we? We all need someone who can speak the truth of God's word into our lives. We were not created to carry the burden the burdens of this life alone, were we? Last week we talked about the fact that if we want to bear the fruits of the Spirit, we need to sow to the Spirit by practicing spiritual disciplines. Specifically, the, the spiritual discipline we emphasized was the reading or meditating and memorizing of Scripture. And then we talked about the importance of having a running conversation with God as we begin our day in God's Word and we continue throughout the day talking to God, asking God to lead us and to guide us. This week in our text, the Apostle Paul is letting us know that our discipleship should not be held in a vacuum. Discipleship does not happen alone. Fruit-bearing disciples are made in community. As we look at the way Jesus made disciples, it was primarily by investing in 12 men. And as a part of those 12, he actually had three men, Peter, James, and John, that he was most intimate with and most vulnerable with. The greater the intimacy, the smaller the group, the greater the intimacy. The greater the intimacy, the greater the vulnerability, and the greater the opportunity for spiritual transformation. Code groups are great, same gender groups, about three to four, like Jesus had with Peter, James, and John, is where the greatest vulnerability tends to take place. We call these same gender groups in our church triads. We all need to be in some type of same gender accountability relationship, and a triad of three to four is ideal. Are you in a triad? Do you have some kind of same gender group that you can come to with your burdens and your cares and your concerns that help hold you accountable, to encourage you in your walk with Christ? Do you have a small group of three or four where authentic accountability takes place, where you can help carry one another's burdens through prayer and the study of God's Word? I don't want to sound like a legalist here, but a three to four is the optimal size because in a group of eight, it's easy to hide and not share that day. In fact, depending on who is in your group, it can be difficult to get a word in in a group of eight. I mean, you can have one person who does all the talking and you're trying to share and there just isn't enough time. But in a group of three to four, everyone Everyone is expected to contribute to the conversation. If you'd like to be in a triad and you're not in one, talk to me or talk to Murray. Or if you're a woman, talk to Sherry Lovato. We'd love to help you find a group of three or four uh, people in the same gender to share life with together, to share fellowship with so that we can take our burdens to Jesus together because only Jesus has the power to carry our load 
doesn't he? A couple of weeks ago, I was reading uh, the Gospel of Mark to my daughters as a part of our nightly devotionals. And I was reading uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we were in chapter 2. If you remember in Mark chapter 2, we have the powerful story of the healing of the paralytic. This paralyzed man who was confined to life on a mat had no way of, of, of getting anything except through the charity of others. And this paralyzed man was dependent on four friends who brought their buddy, their paralyzed pal, to Jesus. But when they got to the house where Jesus is preaching, there's no way for them to get in through the door. The crowds are too large. But they don't give up. They, they make a hole through the roof, and they begin to lower him down to Jesus so, they, so that he might uh, encounter Christ. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, we read, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Initially, Jesus doesn't offer to heal the man physically. Jesus provides spiritual healing by forgiving the man of his sins, which is what we all need, isn't it? We all need to know that our sins are forgiven. As Paul writes in our text this morning, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. John Calvin points out that in this context of Galatians 6, our burdens are our sins. The weakness or sins under which we groan are called burdens. He, Paul, enjoins us to bear the burdens. We must must not indulge or overlook the sins by which our brethren are pressed down, but relieve them, which can only be done by mild and friendly correction. In this correction, we must point people to Jesus, because only Jesus can carry the burden of our sins. Only Jesus can provide the healing that we all need. As Jesus states in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, after offering forgiveness to the paralyzed man, Jesus senses that the Pharisees are wondering, well, who are you to be able to offer forgiveness? And so Jesus responds to the scribes when he says to them in Mark, chapter 2, verses uh, uh, 8 to 12, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. To God be the glory. As we take our our eyes off of ourselves and we turn them towards God and how God might use us to help others, to help others take their burdens, the burdens of their sins, to Jesus. So they might receive the healing that only Jesus can bring. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks that you have invited us through your Son, our Savior, to come to you, all who are